0: Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders
1: who
2: are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello, and welcome back to Payroll Question Time. Delighted to say this is our two-year Payroll Question Time anniversary. That's right, going for two years today. It's a new financial year for all of you as well. So we're going to be talking about that. Uh, So let me introduce you to my background. Uh, My name is Nick Day. I'm host, of course, of this show. I'm a reward 300 member and founder of JJ Recruitment, which is a specialist payroll recruitment company. I've been working in payroll recruitment for nearly 20 years. I've seen the industry change significantly over those two decades, but particularly in the last year. It's been a really exciting time to be in payroll. We've seen a phenomenal focus on companies actually raising the profile of payroll, hiring top talent, increasing salaries, offering flexible working and loads more. Finally, it's getting the respect it deserves. So, really excited to see the next twelve months and what we've got to unfold in front of us. But that's enough of me. Let me introduce you to our panel. So, let's start with you, Simon. Introduce yourself, and if you can, let us know what you've seen significantly change over the last twelve months.
0: Okay. Good afternoon, everyone, and it's great to be with you on uh, Peril Question Time again. I think this is my second year anniversary. Then date, if it's your first, uh, Nick. So, very much there from the start from our uh, colleagues at DWF, who unfortunately are unable to be with us today. But uh, yeah, my background, I uh, joined Centrifile back in 1984. I must have been a baby at the time, probably was actually, but uh, 1984, after being with Sun Alliance in their IT department and joined a group developing new payroll software. Um, I have a Master of Science in payroll management and I'm um, a Fellow of the Charter. Institute Parallel Professionals, also part of Reward 300. I have been since the inception of the Parallel Top 50 back in whenever it was. Was that 2009, I'm going to guess? But uh, some years ago, uh, I had the Strathurn Lifetime Achievement Award as well in 2012, which seems a bit strange to me, and it did at the time because I felt too young when they awarded it. But I received that award from Peril and Benefits. And my role in Works is as the Director of UK Compliance Strategies. So my team look at the legal changes that apply and ensure that they're developed into the pay solutions. Now, there are sort of a couple of levels. There's legislation that's core into the solution, and then there's legislation that's within your process and applications. Does that make sense? We have responsibility for the core, the engine, and it, how it calculates things like tax and national insurance. However, you will have responsibility for things like how you set your pension scheme rules and how you set other policies like holiday pay and police national minimum wage. So we may have tools that can help you, but the responsibility lays with yourselves as the employer because they're subjective. But it's great to be here, and long may we continue on PQT.
2: So what's been the, the one significant thing you've seen changed in over the last 12
0: months, Simon? Uh, I think there's a transformation on a number of things. So are we in this realisation that at some point we've got to start paying for all this expense that we've had. There are uh, significant changes that we'll see. We've got introduction of health and social care levy. National minimum wage revolution is coming in. I'm coming up with a whole list of them, Nick. That was a (laughs) daft question for me, wasn't it? You can't pin me down to one.
2: No, that's probably (laughs) fair. Well, we're going to get through some of that Today's conversation as well. Let me uh, introduce Andy Nichols, um, Industry Laser Manager at the Pensions Regulator. Andy, if you'd like to introduce yourself and let us know something that you've seen change significantly over the last twelve months.
1: Uh, hi everyone. Yeah, Andy. Um, in my role a Regulator, is really to help payroll professionals and payroll software companies, uh, with, particularly with pensions generally, but mainly uh, automatic enrolment. And it's funny picking up on Simon's point. The employer, for instance, has all responsibility for automatic enrollment, but Obviously software helps the employer meet those requirements, but legislation applies to the employer but so if, whatever is built into a software system for automatic enrollment whatever functionality is there has to be compliant so it has to be checked to make sure it's okay but actually the duty still lies with the employer and the wonderful joys of legislation etc yeah. um what what do I think I mean yeah I mean backgrounds all peril which is uh, why I I'm here, I suppose, because it bridges the link between that and pensions. Well, even when you think about the world of pension, the got Pensions dashboard has been going long in the background where people are able to see what pensions they've got. And that has a slight impact on payroll potentially because the data that comes out of payroll feeds into pension providers, which then feeds from the pension provider into. This dashboard project, which will be look, watch the space in terms of individually, be interesting. Lots of things been going on in the world of peril, lots of changes, you know, coming out of COVID, hybrid working, all has an impact on our working lives.
2: Excellent, uh, thank you, Andy. Well, let's dive into some of these then. Let's find out what we're going to be talking about today. So, today's topic discussions are national insurance changes in April and July 2022, changes to the health and social care levy. Changes to state pensions from April 22, changes to national minimum wage, the PO ferry controversy, uh, and some of the new statutory or a new statutory code to prevent fire and rehire, eco car schemes, COVID 19 sickness policy, and the digitalisation of its notes, and wrapping up the tax year 2021 22. So let's dive into the first of those subject areas then. It's something that I know is close to Simon's heart, which is national insurance changes. So, Simon, what are the key points here we need to think about?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, we've probably not hit it yet, but employees will certainly notice it fairly soon. And maybe the employer's budget will as well, because you're aware that uh, Nash Insurance has increased by 1.25% on both sides to take care of the health and social care levy. That's operational from the 6th of April, two days ago. Seeing a lot of questions on social media, a lot of misunderstandings. So we've had a number of people question the fact that this Friday's pay is using the new NI rates and the rationale for claiming that it shouldn't is because it was worked last week. The reality is, if you're paying it on Friday, it's the 8th of April. Uh, It's after the 6th of April, the new national insurance rules apply. So it's not when you work, it's when you pay it that sets the rules. So last week's work budget is up by that national insurance increase, so just be aware. The other scenario is we've had lots of speculation over these past few months of whether the health and social care levy rise would actually be removed. Lots and lots of hints that uh, maybe that was a consideration. And then we had uh, Boris and Rishi deny it and say it's not going to be removed, it's going to carry on. But in the spring statement two weeks ago, they announced the change to the primary threshold. Now, some are asking questions and saying, of course, there'll be a rise to the secondary threshold as well. So, the employer doesn't get hit by the rise. There is no change to the secondary threshold. It's staying exactly where it was. There is a hit. So, the uh, secondary NI liability is going up and stays that way. But for employees, it's going to change a little because the primary threshold is increasing to match the tax-free allowance amount from the 6th of July. Now, what's the judgment point? Is it when you work or is it when you pay? Standard rules, CWG2, I think it's section 1.3, but I'm saying that from memory. And then you go down about three paragraphs and I'm saying that from memory. The taxation point is, and the national insurance application point is the date of payment, So, it's when you pay it. So, will some people rush either way or delay payments? You could sort of do that. But it's an element if you pay it on the 5th, the old primary threshold applies. If you pay it on the 6th of July, the new primary threshold applies. When does that pay relate to? Absolutely, it doesn't really matter. It's when it's paid and made available for the individual to be able to spend it. So, uh, they're the important factors, I think, to remember. And of course, they don't want directors to have the whole benefit of the 12,570. So, they're doing a number of weeks at the old and a number of weeks at the new, which comes with the 11,908 value hopefully i've remembered that one right so for directors national insurance is an annual method which is different now rishi kind of hinted in some of the interviews that the delay was so that software could get ready now, some people have taken that, that software couldn't get ready. Well, with the announcement of when it was made, it would have been very difficult. But he could have made that announcement three months ago if he would so chosen to. The reality is, uh, I'd suggest, there was never any indication that it was ever going to start from the 6th of April. It was always going to start later. Uh, so, that makes it a fairly complex change. So, there's an element of when can you feasibly put that in. That would have been a challenge inside government never mind outside government. Although, of course, developments have to follow certain uh, quality routines, etc. But payroll software, will it be ready for the 6th of July implementation? I imagine you'll find that that's delivered very soon.
2: Well, then, a little question on that then, Simon. Because how did you feel yes. as a payroll professional, or even as a, someone who's working for a software provider in SD Works, feel about yes. the statement stating that the reason they were delaying this until July was to give payroll providers time to get ready? Because I spoke to uh, a COO of another firm, payroll provider, who felt very confident that actually that was a bit unfair on payroll providers and they were ready right now. And they've had dealt with much more complex changes in the world of payroll in a heartbeat rather than wait till July. So how did you feel about that being given as the reason?
0: I'm not sure he did give that as the reason for the delay. I think he probably gave that uh, software would have to get ready, which is true. But if the government are stating it was delayed for software, that would be false because they weren't of our software. This is a government policy and a government decision. However, there will have been some consultations on proposals to ask what the implication would be for the input. But I think, Nick, the challenge may be, and I'm going to be a bit cheeky for that, for that COO or CEO, is that they don't like this change because it's complicated to do. And it would have been easier to apply a 6th of April change. I agree with that. However, the Treasury never offered that ever even in pre-consultations the consultation was always that it would be a post 6th of april change now why and i think now i'm going into opinion and views here so don't hold me to these why Mm -hmm. and that's if it was brought to the 6th of april Uh, a number of us wouldn't have noticed the change because it would in effect kept a status quo and wiped out the health and social care levy for the lower paid and for the higher paid we would have noticed some change but it'd be offset by the rising of the primary threshold and it would hit the secondary threshold the reality is what's the best way of putting the price rise on a mars bar well the best way of putting a price rise on a mars bar is to put the price up and knock some pence off and then you get rid of the discounts and you were always getting it cheaper weren't you whereas in reality you paid more all along and so I think there's an element of they want us to feel it to then in July go phew that's not so bad sorry is that a bit too speculative
2: no no, I think there's
0: an element of sometimes what you do is you do something harder and then relax it and we feel fantastic it's not as bad as we thought
2: Sure. No, that other thing we said makes sense. I think there was some disappointment out there in the world about the fact that it's going to cost some of the, well, incomes well up to about 35000 about £90 in additional costs as a result of the delayed change. Um, and for some, that's sure. going to hit them quite hard, particularly with higher energy prices and yeah. things like that.
0: Well, I'll put another view, Nick, is could the Chancellor have done something about that? And the answer is yes. In July, he could have put the primary threshold for this year even higher, couldn't he? So there's an element of thinking, we're paying £95 more than we needed to. The Chancellor could have charged us £95 less for the remainder of the tax year if he wanted to. But, well, I'll I'll give him a view. I don't think it was ever the intention to give people that £95.
2: No, I'll I'll agree with you on that as well as my view for sure. Well, the good news is we've had our first question in from uh, from our audience, which is great. So I'm going to start with this one for you, Simon. Uh, for the last two years, sure. my company has been paying all staff a tax-free working from home allowance of £26 per month, as allowed by HMRC. Right. Like many companies, we've now gone to a hybrid arrangement, broadly three days in the office and two days at home per week. In the new fiscal year, can we continue to pay this allowance tax-free?
0: I'm regulated in my own right to give tax advice, and I guess we've already had the caveat at the beginning of the disclaimer. On behalf of Works, I can't give tax advice. It's a regulated activity. Personally, I potentially could. I think there's an element of look at the latest regulations. When the allowance came in originally and i'm going back some time it was three pounds per week Uh, it was for occasional working from home allowance and had no questions asked it's changed it went to four pounds and then at the beginning of covid rose to six pounds a week or 26 pounds a month if you actually pay it you can pay 26 because it's rounded up to a whole pound Uh, that allowance can continue but you need to look at the revised conditions for doing it under covid The government have been fairly relaxed. So, if you worked at home one day, you could have the allowance for the whole year. Uh, Is that really the case going forward? I'd say look at the guidance on HMRC. Also, now we're in this hybrid situation. There's an element of thinking, what's the regularity of working in an office? So, is that now your permanent workplace on Particular days, or is it a bit more random? So there's a whole plethora of legislation around expenses and benefits and travel in relation to where you work. For example, officially I'm a home worker, have been since 2002, so that's 20 years predates this, uh, and uh, and and seeing what the arrangements are. Do I travel? on business, of course I do, Uh, not so much over the past two years, but certainly used to do a lot of travel. In in essence, I'm saying, yes, the £26 a month or £6 a week can continue for those who are working at home, but you need to look carefully at the guidance because it's all, say, slight different things in relation to choice. And whether the employee is choosing to do something, as opposed to there is a requirement to do something. However, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I'm thinking of the SD Works offices are our own. Most of them actually don't have any desks anymore. So no one really has a permanent workplace that they can call their own with their own drawer of staple removers and sure. uh, staplers and all that sort of well, thing and a screwdriver. Testing. That's right. Now it's meeting areas, and they're not singular generally either. They tend to be more for mini teams or larger teams or large rooms. So they're built as rooms for people to work together as opposed to an office to go and work. But it's very interesting to go and read the guidance. So I've sort of given a half answer there, Nick, to say yes, no, and maybe. But it depends on the circumstance of the individual. And there is new guidance has been published by HMRC on when it does apply.
2: Perhaps we can um, open up on the health and social care levy and some of the, uh, the changes.
0: Certainly. So the health and social care levy is come into play. The government have asked if we would put a payslip message on. Uh, it's not law. There's no legal requirement to do it. But there's a lot of social media debate going on. I think uh, we've probably even seen that in the payroll WhatsApp group to a certain extent, maybe even on the HR leaders one, and certainly on some of the others of whether people will or won't. So it'd be interesting to see the results. I think that most will probably comply But some of the larger businesses seem to be a bit uh, concerned of this message and what it's for. And actually, many have chosen to do alternate messaging to their employees. But some in those sorts of responses that you and I kind of see, Nick, why we communicating it? Why don't the government communicate it? They're the uh, owners of their tax customers, as they call them these days. Why don't they? But I think we are seeing that. So, there's lots of articles been in the press this week on it. There are tweets and elements that are showing it. But it'd be interesting to see what people are doing. Occasionally, we're getting people saying, why haven't you just put it automatically on? Uh, it's not law. So, uh, there's an element of it needs your agreement to put it on. Can works facilitate the message on its payslips? Absolutely. It can facilitate a number of messages on the payslips. And if you want to, this one to be on there, ask for it and it will be you can actually even say how long you want it to live but basically uh, it needs to be there until for a year but some of the examples i've seen online also because some are showing actually the payslip message they started before the 6th of april so they're actually appeared in previous months which is interesting because there's no real requirement to do that and it doesn't really apply to any prior periods
2: Simon, how does it impact on salary sacrifice schemes?
0: Yeah, uh, so I actually think it makes them a lot more attractive. There is a downside, so for the high-paid careers, those that are paying uh, above minimum wage. Once you've sacrificed, there's a more of an attraction. And I was working this out a little bit on a pension contribution. I should have had the example here. It would have been good to show. But there was an element of you know, thinking if I put £1,000 sacrifice into a pension scheme, at the moment, if you're a higher rate taxpayer, someone paying 40%, you're actually saving 42%. So your pension contribution has cost you 42% less. Of course, with the new levy, coming in, that rises to 43.25% less, which actually, when you look at the values, adds a significant amount of money over time. So, for example, smart pension contributions seem more attractive.
2: Why do you think that has that heavily by HMRC? I haven't, haven't, we haven't seemed to have seen much or read much about this in the in the, in the news channels recently. Well, I, certainly I haven't.
0: Now I've seen a couple of articles on uh, some of the, uh, not necessarily broadsheets uh, as they were known, but they tend to be online rather than the physical paper talking about the rise a little bit. This week I have seen. And yeah, I have seen some tweets which come from HMRC about it uh, or, or even some facebook messaging but that might be because I, i'm a strange sort of fella that kind of follows that type of stuff whereas i guess the ordinary man on the street probably doesn't for some reason because um they don't really want anything to do with that tax and national insurance thing really mm-hmm. but uh, those strange payroll people seem to follow facebook pages about hmrc and dwp for some reason
1: I was thinking that, for me, if I had to go back to my payroll roles, am I going to get a lot of questions from my employees as to why my national insurance has gone up if they realise it? And maybe putting the message on a payslip might be worthwhile doing that, especially if you can put more than a message in a link to explain it, to try and... Be more helpful and to, and to reduce queries, especially yeah. in April.
2: Yeah, nice point. Well, let's jump back into something you mentioned in your introduction, Simon, about sure. things that you are passionate about talking about, which is national minimum wage. Um, and in particular, we've got some increases uh, which take effect from the 1st of April. Uh, I wonder if you could guide us through the increases sure. and what it means for payroll.
0: Yeah, sure. And I probably mentioned a little earlier, and let's revisit that. The application of the national minimum wage, well, we talked about that in relation to health and social care levy. Let's now reiterate that with national minimum wage. And if we go into pensions, we'll find it's different again, because they all have their own decision points. They're all unique and not connected. So national insurance and tax is related to when you pay it. National minimum wage is not. National minimum wage relates to the start of the pay reference period. So for pay periods that start from the 1st of April on or after the rise applies to national minimum wage. If the pay period started on the 30th of March or the 29th of March and then goes to the 28th of April, the pay period has started before. And again, it doesn't relate to necessarily to when work is, although it has some correlation under section nine of the national minimum wage regulations then you've got uh, subsection C, which can relate to when timesheets are associated and which rate applies. But in effect, the pay rise is for a pay period starting on or after the 1st of April. So, some queries may come in saying, why haven't I got my days for the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th or a weekly payroll, for example, paid at the new minimum wage rate? Why is it paid at the old? The legal requirement is that actually you only have to pay it at the old. It's only for the next pay cycle that it has to be paid at the new. So that's one of the oddities about it. The other uh, aspect, I guess, on national minimum wage is the 21, 22-year-olds. We've talked about this on prior sessions, but remember, they've had quite a rise. I think it's over 11%. This is a stepping stone, I would suggest, to the national living wage rate age band dropping eventually to 21. So, this is kind of halved the gap. So, you'll probably find in future, the gap is removed because the age is dropped to 21. So, the intention of getting there certainly by 2024, as there is for increasing national minimum wage, national living wage rates for 2024, to a new target value, which would be much higher than the £9.50. Yeah, quite passionate about national minimum wage. There's an expression that we're kind of coming out with in SD Works, and you may see this, which is minimum wage, maximum confusion. Because minimum wage law is really confusing. Certain yeah. aspects of it don't count for minimum wage. For example, if you come in and do time and a half, the half pay doesn't count for minimum wage purposes. And if your salary sacrifice will have a deduction, the auditors will ignore the half pay. That's cash in the hands of the pocket of of the employee, uh, et cetera. They'll look and deduct anything off the standard single pay. And if you've underpaid, they'll make you top it up. So, it's an element of really understanding really complex maybe that's another one we call it minimum wage maximum complexity it is really complicated quite often we'll talk to people and say have you got a minimum wage problem is there anything we can assist you with no 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 no. we pay £9.50 so we're all good and it's not about the pay rate it's about the pay received for the time worked but they do quarter hour rounding on time machines so if you're in a you know, five two, they'll count that from the hour. Or if you're in at five past, they'll count that from fifteen past. HRC, National Minimum Wage people are going to say, why didn't you pay the ten minutes? And, A good example
2: uh, for everyone who's yeah.
0: watching Come this, who
2: already on. understands and knows how complicated payroll is. I think one thing we've got to try and do, maybe SDWorks can do, is get that message out to everyone else because it's not easy, as these as these PQTs really really show. No. Um, what about what's the impact then on uh, on maternity in Alabaster?
0: The alabaster rule, uh, I mean, everybody starts cursing and uh, going dizzy at this or feeling ill or they think they've got a touch of COVID maybe. But uh, under the alabaster rule, any pay rise that occurs during the maternity leave period, going back to the qualifying week average earnings, eight weeks calculation any pay rise in between at any point affects SP for the whole SP period. So, this rise to national minimum wage, if anyone's on maternity leave now and their earnings and their pay, et cetera, is under the 950. You need to top it up. That's an entitlement uh, they have a right to under the Alabaster rule. So, national minimum wage rise is a pay rise, and there's a requirement to undertake the Alabaster application. You could say, What's the risk? I think the risk uh, is nothing if they don't do anything about it. But if they do do something about it, it would potentially fall under discrimination, which has no upper limit. On the the ET findings, it would be considered sex discrimination towards someone that has protected characteristics. So that's the risk. Will people bother to do that? Uh, Different matter, isn't it? sure
2: well, we've had a couple of questions so come in you. so thank you we've got the first one which comes in from salic which says we passed the employer ni saving for salary sacrifice for employee personal contributions sacrifice salary to the pension pot from this month an extra 1.25 percent would be saved by the employer do you know what will happen next year when it will become a separate tax charge will there still be an employer saving on the sacrifice salary for pension so there's probably one for you here andy
1: well, I'm not aware of what, what the decision is yet in terms of health and social care levy, how that will work in twenty three, twenty four. But at the moment, while it's national insurance, yes, obviously that will get into the pension pot. But if they're gonna treat health and social care levy the same as national insurance, then salary sacrifice will still apply. And therefore by you adding the extra from the employers and I saving that's really kind, really good to keep those pension pots topped up to the max, really. But I don't know. I don't know yet. Yeah, I've, I've not heard.
0: Yeah, I, I suspect that uh, Andy is correct in what he's saying, that uh, the saving will be there because they've not actually earned that money. However, there are risks to you by doing that top up. And the risk is that if someone goes on maternity leave, you have to maintain that top up, yet you've saved nothing. Yeah. And Andy may be able to talk about that. But employer contributions have to continue as if they were working and you won't have any saving to cover it
2: sure now for the apologies a moment there. if you, we had an extra panel guest just join us because when i asked that question alexa started answering it for us so apologies we've had another question come in from emma i think we may have answered this already but i'll just run it through again just in case which is uh, for you simon when do you think the national living wage age threshold will decrease again in the future
0: There was a plan. I mean, I'm saying this from a memory. uh, So forgive me if my memory is slightly out. But uh, my memory tells me that the original plan was for 2024. May have to verify that. However, take care because you may find the gaps shrinking. So uh, you may find that next year, the 21, 22 year old gap may be halved again.
2: I'm bringing us back to the dreaded word of alabaster uh, Joe panther has asked if an employee is due alabaster back pay when do we have to pay it back to them please
0: as soon as you can so um, next pay period that you identify the rise just pay it you can still claim from the government just add it as SMP onto the the uh, payroll return and you can claim back that 92 so include that extra top up on your EPS well the reclaim value on the EPS and you'll get that covered so it's in effect uh, from the period the rise is applying really you should do the back payment of s and I would suggest.
2: And Andy I cut you off to ask that first question when you're in mid-flow uh, on the impact on maternity that's in that's alabaster so I'm going to bring that back to you. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say about um, just from a general perspective in terms of um, what's going to happen in April, because the national minimum wage has gone up, you may now find that there's people that weren't maybe part-time people that now are starting to earn above the trigger point for automatic enrollment. So you may find that April has a little influx of people being automatically enrolled and of course they may opt out as well so you may find a little bit extra work within the world of payroll generated by that and also also what has already been mentioned is you know if you have got a salary sacrifice scheme in place pension salary sacrifice or even any salary sacrifice scheme you need to look to see whether or not you can still apply that salary sacrifice and don't forget national wage if you get an inspection and you discover you're informed that you are actually underpaying and you've got to work back possibly up to six years to recalculate what should have been due the same will apply to to automatic enrollment when you pay those national minimum wage arrears to someone two years ago when i should have had extra 10 pound that 10 pound may mean that that person triggers in that week two years ago and they should have been enrolled in that week two years ago so it's not just a simple tax national insurance type of View. you you've got pension involvement in in national wage areas set up so be be careful um and just you know just be aware as we know it is complex. It's, complex. Well, it's complex payroll it is complex now yeah
2: Well, let's move on then. I mean, last uh, payroll question time, we talked a lot about tribunal compensations. We highlighted the uh, the P&O ferries situation, which uh, continues to roll on in the news uh, with uh, the first, I think, cases coming through now. But it has actually uh, resulted in a a few uh, things to consider from a payroll perspective, one of which is the new statutory code of practice uh, to prevent fire and rear hire. And we're going to discuss that as well as what the long-term impact of that um, statutory code is. So um, back to you, Simon, I wonder if you can just elaborate a little bit more on the p o situation and this new statutory code.
0: So, yes, um, it's been an interesting few weeks on the p affair to the extent that uh, the uh, CEO was summoned to Parliament, made an admission uh, that they had broken the law as an organisation, but felt it was worthwhile Uh, because it would cost less. And uh, as a practice that we sometimes see in some of the social media, uh, even for small businesses are thinking that sometimes the employer thinks the employee won't complain. Uh, and they'll just live with it or don't know their rights and so we'll move on. And there are time limits on activity. But obviously, the government, I think, have become a little bit annoyed over some of the response of the company. And so have launched two initiatives, I think there are. And one is a uh, new statutory code to prevent unscrupulous employers using fire and rehire tactics. But we'll see in social media or even the press that that's not unusual to p uh, that's uh, possibly being used elsewhere, where people are basically being saying, Can you sign this new contract starting Monday, or else don't bother turning up because you're out? Mm-hmm. And so the practice of fire and rehire. Uh, which refers to when an employee dismisses a worker and rehires them on new, less favourable terms, is uh, being actioned to. So the code will include practical steps that employers should follow. A uh, court or tri- employment tribunal will take the code into account when considering relevant cases. And the power to apply an uplift of 25% on an employee's compensation if an employer unreasonably fails to comply with the code. So, the challenge with that is if it's taken to tribunal, the ruling of the tribunal could be uplifted by a further 25% onto it. So, it's an element of this is all a reaction to the PO case by the government there has been an exchange of letters they're quite interesting to read or I'm just boring one of the two uh, between Paul Scully of uh, bays and the CEO of pO with an increasing anger growing the other aspect of course is the implication of national minimum wage because it was claimed that the employees on the uh, that were being taken on board were being paid less and so there are new National minimum wage laws, which have really been turned around really quickly, that enforce that ferries docking in on British ports and on corridors, they call them, to the European Union. So, negotiations be held with Holland, uh, France, Belgium, Ireland, that national minimum wage rules have to be complied with. So, national minimum wage rules will apply to the workers on those ships. And so, it's been interesting, uh, sort of to experience the debacle i think they're trying to sail again from dover today oh, there you go. don't know if they've achieved it but uh, uh we'll see how it goes
2: excellent so what do you think yeah. is the long-term impact here i mean presumably had this been in place before this has occurred it probably never would have occurred in the first place so do you think we've done enough to prevent it happening again and what do you think will be the long-term impact
0: In relation to the individual employer, I don't know, but I think it's an element of thinking of business in the UK in general, isn't it? And thinking this actually means we've got to think in different ways. And uh, for for a conservative government – bringing in employment protections, you probably think that's foreign land some years ago. But uh, of course, governments are elected by people, so uh, not by businesses. So they're not always uh, going to think that way. We could actually say it's a little bit more left-wing than it used to be uh, in some of the policies that have been directed here. But there is this advancement of protection, possibly because protection of the worker brings in increased tax revenues for us to spend as a nation. But uh, interesting times. So there are implications elsewhere. We could think this code relates to P&O. This code doesn't relate to P&O. It relates to everybody. And that's what we've got to consider. I
1: think it's interesting as well because the regulator obviously were interested in this. If a company is in distress, is what they're saying, Mm. then actually is their pension scheme fully funded? And in fact, it's not. So we are actively helping the trustees and and with the employer about let's get this pension scheme funded because those individuals deserve their pensions. And also, are these new people workers for automatic enrolment? National wage applies or are they not? And that needs to be identified and sorted out. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the background as well, you know.
0: You know, If a business isn't viable, uh, what's the answer? Because breaking law isn't an answer to a non-viable business, is it? But I, I guess it's no. difficult, isn't it? Because you think there's, there are risks of you know, another 2,000 jobs potentially that haven't been shed. But equally, there's probably a view of thinking, but you're owned by a parent that's made a lot of money over the years out mm. of this and still yeah. make a lot of money. What's going on?
2: Yeah, I think most people are in that in that camp. Also, that's what you're reading and seeing, and and, and rightly so, uh, would be my opinion.
0: From
1: a regulator perspective, we don't care where the employer is. We'll go after them because it's the individuals who are going to suffer, not going to get their Absolutely. pension. So the mining company got taken over, and they, they, they hadn't paid anything to the pension scheme. And uh, I think it was a German company that owned the UK arm. And so the German company have now paid the full, I can't remember how much it was, 100 plus million or whatever pounds into the scheme might be less than i can't remember you know we will pursue our legislative our powers are strong enough to go to an overseas country and get money out of overseas employers
2: absolutely right well staying on the transport theme but moving away from ferries and tribunals and into the world of eco transport schemes and electric cars two of us are in electric cars already Andy. so you're the odd one out on this one for the moment (laughs) Some of us may have already taken advantage of these uh, plug-in grant schemes, uh, Simon being one of those. had really a good chat at that a moment ago. So uh, let's talk a little bit about these, um, these schemes. Uh, the government has committed to a two-year extension of plug-in van and truck grants. Uh, and there were loads of conversation in the social groups and online and Facebook groups and beyond about these different schemes, about electric cars, about the changes that are to come. Uh, so Simon, if you'd like to take the floor and tell us a little bit about the recent extension and um, take it from there.
0: Well, uh, you're probably the expert more on those than I am, uh, Nick, but, uh, but I can certainly say in 2004 I had electric charging point fitted to the house, and at that point it actually cost me nothing. Uh, I think we kind of joked earlier if I'd wanted the version that I pressed the button and told me a joke I'd have to pay £95 yeah. um, but I didn't. I chose the cheaper version which was free and and I am actively using it. The funny thing is I didn't have an electric car in 2004 it's just these people came round fitting them uh, and saying they could be covered partly or wholly by grants, grant and they were and I guess that's an extension of encouraging eco transport so I actually have electric car I'm not going to say it's electric ranges Absolutely fantastic, but it's nice for what I use it for, and makes a change. I guess there's an element of affordability, but we are seeing a lot of launches of eco car schemes via employers, and we've had lots of inquiries. I'm not sure if people are really understanding some of the detail of what they are, because a lot of them have asked us to implement a salary sacrifice scheme for an employee to buy an electric car. I think there's a couple of things there, and you'll see common themes. When you run an operation of a salary sacrifice, the employee actually absolutely buys nothing at all. They are not buying anything. If they are, you take it out of their net pay after tax and national insurance. That you have to tax it, and national insure it for before you buy, because buying things like that is not tax and NI free. But if you operate a salary sacrifice scheme, because certain car types fall Outside the opera law and the optional remuneration law meant that if you salary sacrifice for things except some exempted items, the taxable benefit was either the higher of the benefit of the item or the salary foregone. So, if you ordinarily sacrifice for a company car, which was popular years ago, and say the car tax because it was a low emissions car was, say, 10%, that might be cheaper because you've saved 40% tax in your sacrifice. You've now been taxed 10% of the value of the car. That comes to half the amount. So, actually, you've saved 20% tax. Wonderful. Wonderful under the opera law when it was introduced back in 2017, that wiped it away. So in effect, the taxable benefit of the car is the same amount you've sacrificed, but it exempted eco-cars. So eco-cars don't fall in that uh, trap of opera. And so you truly are taxed on the benefit status of the eco car which before april 2021 was zero so the company car tax on an eco car that met the conditions was nothing so the car might be forty thousand pounds your tax liability is zero percent of forty thousand pounds but of course from april 21 There is a 1% liability charge on electric cars. So now you have to report it. It's a company car. Lots of people are telling me, but this isn't a company car. It is a company car. All right, salary sacrifice eco-cars are not company cars. They are company cars. Now, I'm going to repeat that probably a third time. If you're operating a salary sacrifice eco-car purchase scheme, you're giving a company car to your employees and you fall under company car obligations to report. And last year, 1% tax charge, Class 1A on the 1%. This year, 2% tax charge. So, from 6th of April... The tax charge on eco-cars has doubled, so you're going to pay 2%, 100% more, and your Class 1A will have gone up 100% on that car. Is it worth doing? I think we'll have a number of people, probably even on the call that have influenced these schemes, and they'll say, absolutely, saves money, but it's not free.
2: No, no. Uh, I've been through that process myself. The other thing to bear in mind, it's not necessarily highlighted here no. as a bullet point, but something that I've discovered uh, as an electric car owner myself now. Um, for those that are worried about fuel price rises at the moment and people saying well, we had a conversation at a previous payroll question time about whether or not the 45 pence covers the additional fuel prices, I think we agree that it probably does, um, regardless if oh, it's up significantly until it doesn't. However, if you are driving a company car and it's fully electric, the HMO advises that you only claim four pence per mile is used for reimbursing staff for electricity in their fully electric cars. Uh, There will be no taxable profits and no class one national insurance to pay, uh, which is obviously different to what the rates are for diesel and petrol cars. Um, so that's something that I discovered when I did change the car over and I put in my first claim thinking I could still get the 45 pence and it was kicked back going, no, no, Nick, uh, it's fully electric, it's a company car, four pence is uh, is what we can do. And, um, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's a slightly different process. So for those thinking about it, that's worth throwing in sure. mind as well.
0: Yeah. If it had been your own car and you truly bought it yourself, then 45p. Correct. Yeah, it's,
2: But if it's a company car, four pence,
0: which is a big difference. Company. That's right. And, and, and that's why it's important for people to understand if they're offering salary sacrifice pension arrangement, uh, sorry, eco-car arrangements, it is a company car. You can't yeah. go above the AMAP rates. However, the other trick, and I guess this is just going into sort of chit-chat a bit, is the nice thing I discovered when I got my electric car from my son, who uh, used to work at uh, Peterborough United Football Club. As a, a fan appreciation officer, whatever, and a colleague of us said, he said, "Oh, he's just got an electric car." Did he know he can park in the charge spot for free, and the electricity is free in all the council-run car parks? And I didn't know, but it is true. So if you go to the council car parks and find a charge point there, uh, point or whatever, there is no charge for charging your car and you can leave it there for three hours free of charge. So I've now learnt uh, all the others are scrambling for car parking spots for Peterborough United. I know, impossible, you say, in the bottom of the league, but there'd be plenty of spaces. No, but really, if you go there, you find the car parks are full. The electric spots, uh, mind you, are getting more and more cars. I can park in there quite late, put it on charge, go to the match, come out, and it's cost me nothing.
2: Very good. Well, I think the other thing just to mention, because was, uh, I, this is confusion at home from my wife who asked this question. So there may, there may be further confusion out there. The le- we're talking about fully electric cars. So for drivers of hybrid cars, then you can still use the appropriate petrol or diesel rates. Uh, so we're not talking about hybrids, which of course yeah. utilize electric technology. Me and Simon here are talking about fully electric vehicles. So not everyone's necessarily familiar with the. With the differences if you haven't gone down this route yet they are they are very different in terms of the way that they' they're calculated well I've got uh, you here then Simon have we talked yet about the plug-in grant scheme I know you we've mentioned you took advantage of it just to highlight for those that that are thinking about implementing a an eco transport scheme or an electric car scheme for their staff
0: yeah
2: um, what this entails
0: well, I'll claim no expertise on this, but uh, – and again, I probably know the sorts of things you know. But certainly, I I benefited from a prior grant scheme in 2004 in the early, early days. But now the that has gone on uh, the arrangements, and as you're saying, there is a potential grant for installation of various equipment for your plugins ins uh, to be fitted to the side of your house. Mine is it's just on the side of the house. Some people have them in their garage, but I have one. Yeah. What's on the side of the house.
2: Yeah, there's lots of things to look at online here as well, um, benefits and things. So um, yeah, worth worth exploring. Good. Well, let's talk. move it forward. The dreaded word COVID-19. Hopefully one of the last times we'll be using this in a payroll question time and beyond. But there are still a couple of changes to to consider. Uh, We're talking about the sickness policy and fit notes uh, and managing COVID-related absence without isolation guidelines now that they've been removed. Um, Obviously, we usually Mm. have a DWF supporting us with this kind of uh, content, but can't join us this week. So we're going to come back to you again, Simon, to uh, bring us up to speed.
0: Well, yes, I guess it's all an element of confusion. Again, we see a lot of social discussion about this, but the COVID emergency measures all ended on midnight the 24th of March. So there are no COVID related measures, but you need to look at your own policies and decide what they state because some are kind of saying you wouldn't pay for COVID absence. In fairness, uh, you know, last week was it there were four and a half million UK people with COVID. I've got to say for myself, uh, survived two years without COVID. Uh, and then suddenly, after a grandson, number one, came home from school, they asked, uh, suggested to his mother that he gets tested. All he had was a little snivel. Uh, he did come back positive. Uh, where would he have got that? He'd have got that at school. Then my son... Uh, got it four days later. And that was it. Everyone else tested negative for 10 days. Absolutely. And then two weeks later, grandson number three came home from nursery, which closed because they had a COVID outbreak. He got it. His dad got it. And that variant, I'll call it a variant, because I'm not sure if it's the same, just swept through everybody. So the whole family Pretty much came down with it within uh, seven days. And it was light flu, uh, fuzzy head. I found at uh, one point with it, I don't know if others recognize, my wife, it was entirely different how she felt. She was nauseous, severe headaches, I didn't. Uh, I found myself anxiously wanting to do something but not knowing what to do, if that makes sense. That was the condition. Now, what do we do? Because the emergency measures have ended. I think there's a principle of the government saying, well, actually, it's now a bit like having a, a cold or a light flu. It's not really that serious for most people. What do you do? And then what do you do if someone catches it? So um, uh, work-wise, do you operate isolation? Because there's absolutely no isolation law in place anymore no. in England. You don't have to isolate. You're asked to stay away from people and suggested that maybe you ought to take some days off work. But legally, you don't have to. So what do you as an employer do? Do you allow them in? Now you've got to pay for tests as well. Um, Are they going to bother to pay for tests? They're not free anymore. So I imagine we'll go into uh, an area of not testing at all because why would you? Uh, are you going to provide tests to your employees for free um, if they suspect COVID outbreaks or is it are we back to herd immunity uh, position, really, that maybe the government wanted in the first place? Did I say that? I didn't. Did I?
2: We'll end up following a policy that we naturally follow with things like flu. You know, that would be my yes. get. if you get it badly, whether it's COVID flu or something in different No one wants you in the office because no one else wants to pick up what you've got. And a little bit of uh, common sense hopefully will start to prevail.
0: Yes. So standard SSP rules apply. Four-day PIW. That was always the rule that was a four-day PIW had to be formed. Uh, But there are now three waiting days. If they've had another absence within the previous 56 days that formed a four-day PIW, the waiting days sort of merge. So they may have already been served. Pay SSP. If you're telling someone they can't work and they don't feel that they're ill or sick, but you're saying they shouldn't come in because you don't want them, then you're potentially in grounds of medical suspension. Medical suspension is full pay, 28 weeks. So, there's an element of are they ill because no medical professional is saying they are and they're saying they're not ill either. So, there's an element of taking care. And in things like the public sector, they would require them to take the time out. But equally, the public sector policy is you pay them full pay anyway, always was. So, uh, there wasn't a you get SSP only. It was, uh, you know, if you work in the NHS and you have to go off and you're an NHS employee, you get full pay. Uh, So, it's an element of thinking what the considerations are for some of those aspects. And the confusion comes in when your bank and not really NHS, your agency and so forth and so on of who is the real employer etc so interesting times. The other aspect is the launch this week of the digitization of Fitnote. Should we go there so the yeah. Fitnote no longer has to be signed by a medical professional. it can be issued by them electronically or on an app and issued to the employer so you can accept the Fitnotes from that new digitized version. There will be a mixture of old paper and new digitization that comes in because the paper was on the desk and they could obviously use it. Whereas when their supply runs out, they'll have to go fully digitized in the doctor's office. So just be aware of that. Um, I've seen a lot of social media discussion this week on people saying the doctor said I was fit for work on a fit note, but my employer won't allow me to go in. Why are they ignoring that? It's a legal right, isn't it, for me to work? And the answer, of course, is if you've got a fit note and it says you may be able to work, the employer has to agree whether that's really the case or not. And they don't have to agree. They can say, okay, you've got a fit note. It doesn't expire for two weeks. It says you could do light duties. We haven't got any. So stay at home. You're sick. And so you become an unfit person if you, the employer doesn't agree to the fitness requirements stated. Of course, when it expires, you haven't got any fit note or anything. You uh, should be able to work.
2: I do know that touch wood here that I've managed to avoid to my knowledge COVID so far but I've never been more petrified of it than I am probably right now because we've finally no. after two years of not having a holiday we've got a first holiday book for the 14th we're going over to, to the states you still have to do your fit supply test 24 hours before videoed mm-hmm. with a nurse and if any of us in our family have it then we can't go so we're all kind of isolating now hoping we stay free it would just be that well-known law that we will end up getting it now just before we go so we're we're hiding ourselves away in our rooms, hoping to avoid it for just a little bit longer. Fingers crossed. But um, there are still, obviously, not, not every country is, uh, is, is treating it the same way we are yet, which is, um, which is very apparent. Right, we're going to move over to Andy's special subject here. Some state pension changes. Uh, we've seen a 3.1% increase in the full new state pension. Andy, over to you.
1: I think yeah, I mean the state pension is obviously down to DWP and uh, isn't a TPR issue, but obviously it is going up, which is really good for people in the current economic climate. Perhaps not as much as perhaps people were expecting, but that's a political issue, not for me to discuss. The lower earnings limit versus for national insurance and the lower earnings threshold for automatic enrollment So if you is is probably a thing. Hopefully, you've realised you've picked up on the fact that. Uh, Department of Work and Pensions who um, decide what the thresholds are for automatic enrollment have chosen to freeze the threshold for 22-23. So the 21-22 automatic enrollment thresholds, lower and upper, and the trigger are remaining the same for 22-23, but it had been tracking the national insurance lower and upper earnings limits, and of course the uh, national insurance lower earnings limit has gone up for 22 23 but the AE lower threshold does not so it's important if you've got a scheme that uses the AE lower threshold that you're not still using the national insurance lower earnings limit value for that because if you if you do you'll be under contributing and and therefore in breach of legislation so logically the parallel software will have it all covered and that your scheme is 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 directly connected to the AE lower threshold and and it will Just be the same as it was last year so just but please just check just make sure that you are using the correct threshold and we'll see what happens with that uh, because the government plans are at some point they talk about mid-20s um so 24 25 25 26 sort of time that lower Threshold itself will go and it will be nil in effect. So people will start paying from pound one upwards. Um, so watch this space, but there'll be a lot of obviously that won't be something that just be sprung, it'll be known well in advance as to the effective date and so on. Please check your payroll systems, make sure that is okay. And I think generally. When you think about the change of tax year, we've already mentioned about national wage going up. So please have a check to see that if you've got salary sacrifice, we've already mentioned. You may have these additional people triggering. Um, you may, because of the health and social care level, the national insurance increase, um, you may find that employers yourselves may be deciding – to change your scheme from contributions to salary sacrifice. Maybe you don't have that at the moment and maybe now that become, has become attractive. But remember if you change anything in the scheme in very simple terms just check to see whether or not you need to consult your staff. And if you've got more than 50 employees and you do need consultation for most pension changes. So, you know if you are going to change anything regarding your pension scheme you can then just investigate that from a legal perspective as well good to communicate, as always. That's my initial
0: thoughts on that. I don't have anything else to add. This is an area where some people say this is a statutory change It's not a payroll statutory change. It's a scheme rule statutory change. And uh, the scheme rules are set by the trustees of the scheme and the scheme administrators really. And you need to verify because some schemes will have been exempting themselves from or different to banded earnings. Some would attract the old contracted out principle of using the lower earnings limit for national insurance plus the timings are different and that's the other aspect is relating to the national lower earnings limit tracking will relate to tax year whereas the lower threshold isn't it relates to an effective point with the start of the relevant pay reference period chosen for that scheme which can be different. And it's where we used to get the April bounce, Andy, to the extent mm-hmm. that April payments, people think, will track the April thresholds. But if the pay reference period starts before the 6th of April, it's still part of the March pay reference periods thresholds, and so doesn't. So, you can have this kind of drag effect. But you can set your pay reference periods to be the same as the tax periods, in which case it would match. But lower earnings limit NI is different to lower threshold, to lower earnings threshold. And then we've got this set one, set two, set three sort of concept. So some may have thought that old rules that they're applying matched and the minimum was being met, but now they've diverged. That might not be the case. Now, should software automatically identify and change this? My suggestion is no. Because these are set by scheme rules. So you need to notify what the change is to your scheme rule. So that there's verify it and inform payroll. Now, in the SD Work solution, can you put in to use the lower earnings threshold as the min start for a pension scheme and do banded earnings? Absolutely, you can. Will that automatically go up or stay as it is? Absolutely. But if you've chosen the NILEL, to be the lower and tracked, the NILEL has gone up and is no longer valid for banded pension AE schemes. I guess it could be for other types of schemes maybe, Andy, if on yeah, different just, construction. But the key, yes.
1: you're absolutely right. You've got to make sure it's a qualifying scheme. And if you're using low earnings limit, then the actual banded to... earnings is lower and it will be non-compliant. You're not paying enough ease and e contributions into the scheme if it's a banded earning scheme and you're using the LEL. So please don't do that. Unless your scheme, as you say, as Simon says, automatic run puts you into a qualifying scheme. The qualifying scheme rules then take over. So what does the scheme require? But if it's a banded earning scheme and you're using the LEL lower earnings limit, not the AE lower threshold, mm. then it will be non-compliant. Unless, I mean, it may be that you don't have an upper limit, in which case it's, it's probably going to be all right because you're paying okay. contributions above. But you should just ask the question of the pension provider, is my scheme still a qualifying scheme if you've got the low earnings limit as the setting? And as Simon said, if, you're, if you've got a different concept of how pensionable pays determinates just basic salary, then are your contribution rates enough and, and all that? And, and that should be those sort of schemes should be looked at at least every 18 months.
2: I know we' have been Sorry. focused a lot on the changes, obviously a 3.1% increase. I'd be interested to know, Andy, as an opinion piece, more than anything else, nothing definitive here, but whether you think... And awesome enrollment has been an overall success because we know it has reversed the decline in workplace pension savings. There's some really interesting stats that said there's been a tenfold increase in total membership of occupational schemes, rising from 2.1 million in 2011 to over 21 million in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and Simon mentioned earlier that there's um, every chance that it'll start, countries will start being paid from the first pound earned. But also, I remember when it's really hit the news when it first got implemented, a lot of people were saying, well, it's, it's not enough. But what it's, as an opinion piece, now, are we are we viewing this as being a successful scheme since its launch?
1: It has, yeah. Automatic Roman is is a really successful scheme, and a lot actually. Lots of overseas uh, countries have been over spoken to the and the pensions regulator asking how do you do, how do you do it? Tell us. How it worked, and then they can go. They've gone away and implemented their own version. Ireland, for instance, is I think has gone live or will be going live with automatic enrolment. Various other countries, not I can't repeat those ones, but they're they're public, (laughs) the Irish one is, it's very really successful, and it's it's because you go in and you've got to do something to opt out, and therefore it's that sort of principle. The inertia principle works really well. But you are right. A lot of pension providers are saying. You know what, the contributions aren't enough. People might be thinking they're paying into a pension and when they come to retire, they're gonna be in a nice position to afford nice things. But actually what's going in, especially if you're lower paid, may not be enough. And that's what the government's looking at. So they're looking at how the contribution levels right, changing the age down from twenty two to eighteen, reducing the lower threshold to nil and all those things will, will come in at some point as in, in the future yeah. you know so yes watch this yeah. space. but there will be advanced notice you won't just have it all of a sudden.
2: The, I may be wrong on this but there hasn't the bill hasn't been passed yet to extend uh pension automatic enrollment to job holders aged 18 yet or has it?
1: Not yet no there was um Richard Holden the MP. he um put forward a private members bill but it just didn't run out of time in simple terms but the um government the pensions minister has confirmed that, yes, we are going to implement the changes. What we don't know is exactly when. And I guess the government are concerned about affordability for employers if you do drop it straight away, sure. certainly in the current economic climate. But 24, 25 onwards, sometime from that point, I would expect down to 18 for the trigger age and lower threshold to go to nil. And people have discussed we're getting rid of the trigger completely so that everyone goes in, particularly yeah. for part-timers, inequality particularly could tend to be more females part-timers you know is that fair how can we get these people employed even self-employed is being discussed how you get self-employed people being paying into pensions etc
2: two-year anniversary today time flies we'll soon be in twenty four twenty five, and uh yeah. it only seems like yesterday when <laughs> autumn was brought in i can't believe how many years have already passed since uh, since that was even yeah. put in ten, 10
0: years this year well let's think yeah. about so reflective
2: quick. bits then as we, uh, perhaps simon you can kick off with wrapping up uh tax year twenty one twenty two.
0: Yeah, sure. Another little comment. I don't know, it may apply to some of our listeners today. And we've talked about pensions in other nations, but Guernsey, uh, so if you operate in the island of Guernsey, um, bring into play what they call the state second pension from January 2023, which is a little bit like pensions auto-enrollment. So in effect, if you earn up to a certain point, you then have to be in a pension scheme from pound zero and contribute. So just to mention that, but wrapping up to tax year uh, 2021-22. There are some timelines coming up. So we're now in the new year. All your stuff needs to really be in by the 19th of April. I know lots of you get a real pain with RSU issues, share options that are late, et cetera, which cause a lot of angst and difficulty and probably a lot of duplications and misbalances at HMRC as well. But uh, get the data in order, month 12 for directors is sometimes unusual because you'll have been operating the alternate method of national insurance contributions all, all year and then suddenly it goes very strange. And that's because in month 12 for the last payment in the tax year or week 52, if they're a direct on a weekly payroll, you're required to reapply the annual calculation Uh, take off any national insurance that's already been paid and the difference, which could be positive or negative, is the NI bill for the last period for them. Uh, Some don't seem to be used to that sort of activity, but absolutely what the rules require under the CA44 is that that applies. So, you can't operate ordinary NI for a director. Month 12 or the last payment in the year, which is, if it's earlier, has to be annual basis. Uh, P60s no longer need to be approved by HMRC forms unit, but you do need to comply with the RD1. So, you can't just do your own thing, but you don't need to get permission anymore like we used to. So, it's good luck with tax year end, really and hope it all goes well. Make sure your date to values. We get some people trying to do negatives in tax year for certain statutory values. You can't. The FPS will be rejected. So don't remember your final declaration on the EPS, and you'll have your P11Ds, your Class 1A to calculate, payments over for July, and uh, happy new year or happy new tax year.
2: I think for the... First time ever, maybe with a slightly smaller panel, we're uh, going to be finishing on time. Well, I'll take this opportunity as well to say if anyone's watching, you know, still listening to this and watching the webinar and you want to connect with myself, Andy or Simon, uh, you know, please do reach out to us. Please do let us know what you want us to feature in future Payroll Question Times. It's very much a service to support all of you. We try and pick the uh, the subjects based on the feedback you give us and what we think you want to know about based on what we believe is relevant, but you may have something that you're desperate for us to to cover in a future episode. So do let us know what that is. And you can find us, uh, myself and Simon on LinkedIn. We're here to support. And as he said, there's lots of social groups out there as well, which are there to to help you all. The next payroll question time uh, to get ahead of the curve is the 20th of May. So please do remember to sign yourselves up. It's at sdworks.co.uk forward slash PQT. I think this leads me to say a huge thank you to Simon Parsons and Andy Nichols for joining me today on the panel. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Payroll Question Time on the 20th of May, 2022. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.